I don't want a pickle. I just want to ride on my motorcycle. All right, welcome everybody. This is officially the start of season two, episode 49 of the Nokomoto podcast, coming to you straight from Nokomoto headquarters in northern Colorado, going out to over 20 countries worldwide. I'm your host, MotoGP, and with me is your other host, Swiggy. Yo. Okay, let's talk bikes. Now, at the beginning of this episode... I want to mention, again, our little review thing that's going on. So a couple interesting things have happened, and I'm, I'm going to keep this quick. Uh, it appears that the goalposts have been moved on us. For reasons passing my understanding, the pace has just completely disappeared off of iTunes. So dethroning the pace, I guess, mission accomplished? <laughs> I don't know. Um, but... I've uh, we we've gotten a whole bunch of reviews in. We've more than doubled our number of, of reviews, which is great. But there's still a little bit of a ways to go there, and I want to kind of give some explanation for why we're asking for these just very quickly. It's because we want to get a little further up in rankings so we can grow the audience quicker. And at a certain point, we feel we have a large enough audience. We would like to be able to sort of crowd us. Uh, Crowdsource. Crowdsource content. So if only 1% of you guys came back to us with something that we asked for, we would easily have something to use for the show. And I think that would just be really nice. I think uh, something that we've been moving on with this show is a back and forth with the listeners. And I think everyone is pretty stoked about that. And I think it's moving very well and doing a lot of great things for us and for all of you listening. Now... I want to point out that we're working on a couple secret things behind the scenes, this website that we keep mentioning, and also, I think, like a YouTube channel, like a best of the show sort of thing. All these are things sort of designed to get us up there on Google search results, as also as well just, you know, fun little side project things, ways to enhance the show also. So... Like I said before on the last episode, if you enjoyed the show at all, leave a rating and review because it's 10 seconds of your time for all the time we put into this. Just consider that the price of admission. Now, I am going to set a little bit of another goal for us. I want to have 150 U.S. reviews in the next two months. Why that number? I don't know. That's just the bar that we've set. Honestly, that's a really easily attainable thing, considering how many listeners we have now. It's it's not difficult. So go ahead, just leave the review, and the show will get better as a result. All right, so that out of the way, let's do some emails, huh? Mm-hmm. All right, so our first email here, uh, I'm not going to go into everything about this, but... We got an interesting email from John about the now infamous Nikon or Nikon rant that I went on <laughs> episodes back. So uh, I, I just want to say here that um, I'm not going to go into everything in the back and forth that we had, but I love this. This is sort of the first thing that comes up as like the um, corrections and omissions sort of emails that I was asking for. And we had a little bit of a debate about traction and the 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 Niken and if it's better or not and 
all of that. And I think we had a pretty fun, productive back and forth. And does it get better traction? Doesn't it get a better traction? Turns out to be kind of a thing that people get on the internet really heated up about and involves engineering principles and things which you maybe can or cannot disprove and whatever. And I don't want to get that deep into it. Plus, I feel like I've said everything I personally need to say about the knee can. <laughs> the long – well, the main thing is that it's complicated. There's a reason that Bridgestone and Michelin and a whole bunch of other manufacturers have a lot of people dedicated to making new tires and that there are new developments in tire technology. It's a very complicated thing, and it's not just – you know, if you ask a physicist, you know, the textbook answer is that, oh, the, the coefficient of friction doesn't change with weight. It's constant. Well, yes and no. And there's all sorts of other things that are happening where the rubber actually sinks into the road and there's a whole fractal surface thing going on that's creating more friction. And, you know, the fact that the rubber is actually breaking down as it rolls over the road creates additional friction and there's all sorts of crazy things going on that there is no simple answer. Right. But most importantly, the Nikon looks like a dung beetle. So there we go. We win. (laughs) Right. Um, But I actually, I I just wanted to mention that thing about the Nikon, right? Because I want people to send us in, you know, other opinions and we'll go back and forth with things like that. Like if you disagree with us, you know, we're, we're pretty difficult to offend. Like keep that in mind, like send us crazy stuff because we will read it and have a back and forth with you. Okay. So after that, we've got, um, Jack's email, right? Yeah. All right. You want to read that one? So this is from Jack and Jack says, just a quick line to say thanks for the podcast. Finally got caught up with all the episodes and left a five-star on iTunes. Well done, Jack. I went through high school and got into motorcycles in western Indiana, just across from Danville. So I was mostly hooked from episode one and two. I'm another old loser who got back into bikes after being off for many years. I stopped riding when when we started having kids and have mainly been working on mini bikes and dirt bikes for my kids through that time. A couple years ago, I was working on my oldest son's 2005 GS500F that he bought used after high school with no push from me and was post-maintenance test riding it when it hit me. What the hell am I doing? Why haven't I been riding motorcycles? I went out and bought a lightly used 2016 FZ07 followed by an 03 1200 Sportster six months later. Love both bikes for different reasons. Although I have to admit that I came to the same conclusion that Swiggy did on Worst Bike about the 7. When I was looking into putting an exhaust on it, I realized I could have an FC09 for the same cost at that point. Oh well, still love it. It does all the things and more that everybody always claims the old Brit bikes or older UJMs did, with a lot less maintenance fiddling. Thanks to Best Worst Bike, it now has me stocking a yellow 99 Honda Superhawk that's for sale in the area, and has me curious in a bike I have never been interested in, a 2000cc Cowie Vulcan. Curses, GPs. There is one in the area for $2,500 with 12,000 miles. I don't want it, but I keep thinking, holy shit, that's a lot of bike for short money. I also look forward to the podcast bike updates. Tell us more about that Superhawk. 
Okay, so we got a lot here. This is kind of going back through something I asked for a couple episodes ago, that intergenerational sort of thing, right? He's got his kids writing, then he gets back into writing. There's some play there. I'd love to get an email from his son with the GS500 and and kind of see how he feels about writing with Jack and, and everything like that. That'd be fantastic. But on top of that, this like realization that we're supposedly actually providing some kind of service for people. So our best worst bikes are influencing his purchase decisions now. Uh, that that That's messing with my head that people are actually taking us seriously in some sort <laughs> of way. But it's wonderful that people are finding this useful. And yeah, I'd almost forgotten about the the Vulcan 2000. I mean, I hadn't forgotten about it, but it wasn't at the front of my mind. But before this email came in, I had weirdly done a search for um, Vulcans in general, specifically looking at 500 Vulcans for some weird reason in the area. And a 2000 Vulcan popped up and and they wanted five or six grand or something for it. Um, It's still not a ridiculous price, but Two and a half grand with 12,000 miles, that is a lot of bike for no money. Don't sleep on that. That's the, I, 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 how can you go wrong? How can a 2000 Vulcan with 12,000 miles ever be worth less than 2,500? And I think this is, like I said, this, this, this bike's day is not yet come, but it's coming. And you heard well, it here first. It's also, it's one of those bikes because, you know, it's in that 2000 to 2008 period where, the motorcycle industry was doing so well and the economy was so good that all of the experimentation came out and we got a lot of shit out of it, but we also got a few masterpieces that came out and some weird bikes that, although maybe on paper aren't all that good, but work out that are are just so weird and crazy because the economy was doing so well and you could do no wrong as a motorcycle manufacturer right so my thing with this uh if if you haven't heard the episode where i put the uh, kawasaki vulcan 2000 as best bike in the world it's easy to dismiss it as something that's trying to be a harley one upper by going oh well harleys were you know 1800 cc's or 15 or 1700 cc's depending on which big v-twin at the time harley was putting in there oh this one just goes up to 2000 and has a little bit more power a little bit more torque no 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 the philosophy the the philosophy of this engine is way different this bike is not is fast well it's they're one liter cylinders and they're over square it may be the biggest bore cylinder ever put on a production motorcycle. Right. So this is not, it has a Vulcan sort of big cruiser look to it, but it probably performs a lot more like a VMAX than anything else, I would yeah. guess. We're getting I, a little sidetracked. We should probably right, keep right. moving. Okay. So anyway, he want, uh, He also wants to know more about the Superhawk. Well, I have a little bit of an update on the Superhawk. So you and I, Swiggy, were trying to put my Scott Euler onto the Superhawk and, uh, found some really weird things that I didn't know about the bike. Now I mentioned when I got the Superhawk that I love the Superhawk because it's basically the ultimate nineties sport bike. It's like the complete evolution and final word in everything that is quintessentially nineties about sport bikes, right? So it's still carbureted, but it has these massive carburetors on it, right? And it also has a fuel pump. Right, but that that wasn't. 
it wasn't like things went straight from gravity feed to full-on injection. There was a thing there, but it was a short amount of time. But the styling is sort of the ultimate conclusion of 90 styling before everything gets like FZ09 super aggressive and everything. And it's um, just in philosophy. It's just where all of that stuff went. And then once you go to anything newer, you're into a much more modern era of sport bikes, like without a doubt. All the gauges are still analog and everything, but you get a little computer that does a few things for you and and whatever, right? So just how far advanced it is for being a carbureted bike really didn't click in for me until we opened up that airbox, right? And realize it just the carburetors just go straight to velocity stacks inside the airbox. There are no boots attaching the carbs to the airbox like you would normally expect for example and just how crazy complicated these carburetors are so i started looking at some breakdowns of them and holy crap these carburetors might be more complicated than a lot of fuel injectors like seriously there are so many passages like i've i've taken apart a fair number of carburetors i will be very careful come the day that I have to take these things apart. Wow. And just the whole setup of the airbox is completely unlike anything I've ever seen before. It's not how the carbs were set up on dad's, uh, Oh, dad's Ducati was fuel injected. Um, yeah, I just, I've never seen an airbox set up and carbs quite like this. Well, the other bizarre thing was that there is no vacuum line coming off the carburetors and the actual your vacuum source off that motor was built into the engine block. Yeah. Yeah, there is no swapping these carburetors for something else. I mean, more to the point, what would you swap them with? Yeah, that was the thing we were saying. Like as we were taking the airbox apart, it's like, oh, the carburetors are just bolted the airbox is bolted straight onto the carburetors. Well, if there's no boots, how would you swap out the carbs? It was like, well, hang on a minute. What would you replace them with? Yeah, with there are what? no larger carburetors, and they need to fit in this very specific tight space. It's like, This is the end game. There is no extra room anywhere in this bike for anything else. I mean, there's barely room under the seat to put the Scott Euler itself. So I'm thinking of actually moving that underneath the tail somewhere. It's It's tricky. I'm going to find the perfect place to spot it, but to to put it, but I haven't done it yet. So basically everything that I love about the Superhawk has been just even more confirmed to me, right? Because I, I knew there were things about it that were advanced, like the gear-driven cam and, and all that sort of stuff, but it really is the ultimate 90s sport bike in every single way. And will continue to be my steed of choice for that reason, because that is my personal obsession, 90 sports bikes. As far as, yeah, going a 99 Superhawk or a Vulcan 2000, either are awesome, awesome bikes. And either would be a total hoot. Um, it, Yeah, I mean, you know. Would the Superhawk be a huge upgrade from the 07? I don't know. But I can tell you that the Vulcan would be a huge upgrade from the 03 Sportster. 
and you can probably get three, three and a half grand for that O3 Sportster. You shouldn't be able to get that kind of money for it, but you can because it's a twelve hundred and and all of that. So I I say go for the Vulcan two thousand if you're going to do one of these things, Jack, because that's going to be a more meaningful upgrade from you know the cruiser style bike, right? And then the FC07 still does plenty of things awesome. And unless you're planning on really riding around super fast with crazy torque sport bike style, like yeah. I I would say that in terms of getting more power for the same style of bikes that he already has, I mean, the Superhawk is a big upgrade from the FC07, but there are plenty of opportunities to get a big upgrade from the FC07 for similar money to the Superhawk. Yes. But the Vulcan 2000, that's a little weirder, which I would always lean towards. That's a bit more unique. And to get a good opportunity to buy one of those at a low price may not be as, may not show up as frequently. So I would lean towards the Vulcan 2000. Yeah, the Vulcan 2000 also has this little thing where a lot of people are going to think it's fairly unremarkable at gas stations. But some people will be like, oh, Vulcan 2000. But if you just do find yourself in the moment and you want to sort of brag about and have that long conversation about the bike, you can be like, oh, I have this weird Kawasaki that almost no one else has. And guess what kind of power this thing makes? And you can you can have the best of both worlds. You can have the weird bike conversation, but you get to flip that switch on and off whenever you want so it fits into your life perfectly no matter what kind of personality you have about that oh yeah because you can either just be you can either just say oh yeah it's just a it's a road king impersonator or if somebody takes an interest in you say it's a two liter right there you go all right yeah and um no, that's all I got to say about it. I was about to go into a whole thing about the redesigned um, Rocket 3 and whatever, but no, that's a whole nother deep road for another time. Let's see. Is that it for these emails that we got this week that we want to do? Oh, thank you, Paul Davies, for the for the Christmas wishes. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, from Paul. That's right. And yeah, and hopefully, yeah, hopefully you had a great Christmas and a happy new year also. Thank you for spreading the word in Australia. Okay, so now that's out of the way. Best worst bike in the world this week, right? Let's do it. Okay. As usual, our disclaimer. Every week we do the best worst bike in the world this week. We alternate who has best and worst, and we do not know what each other have chosen. If you disagree, don't get worried. It's really just a fun way to look at two bikes that you may not necessarily take a second look at. Now, having said that, if you have an interesting counterpoint or disagreement, absolutely send it to us. But remember, there's no crying in motorcycles, so you don't need to be that dramatic about it. So, having said all that, Swiggy, you've got best bike in the world this week, right? I do. Okay, you ready to reveal that? I am. Okay. And the best bike in the world this week is? The BMW HP4 Race. Okay. 
This is a polarizing bike in some ways. Tell me about this. <clears throat> well, this should not be a polarizing bike. This bike is just straight up awesome in every way. Basically, if you have $80,000 lying around and you just want a full-on, out-of-the-box, world superbike class machine, this is your bike. Well, you brought up a bike like this before, which was the Aprilia RS V4, the race edition. I can't remember what the cost was on that. Oh, no, the race edition is similar money to this. Okay. But the, the street version of the RSV4 is like $21,000. But this is full-on... A world superbike bike. Yeah. If you put any professional rider on this bike... Like Michael Dunlop. Yeah. It, well, I mean, that's street racing. It's a little different. This is probably better than what Michael Dunlop rides. Yeah, it could be. So... This bike is uh, 215 horsepower. It has a dry weight of 311 pounds. Whoa. It has not an aluminum reinforced or strutted frame, but a full-on carbon fiber monocoque frame. Okay. And swing arm and wheels, just like the Super Legera. Hmm. So, okay, well, okay. Within within this category of bike, I'm now I'm thinking. Well, yeah, because if you think the um, the Honda RC two one three V, those are like what, like a hundred and eighty thousand dollars or something like that. Well, that's the absolute base price where they don't even unrestrict the software and it only revs to eight thousand RPM. Right. But it's also GP technology, which means it's not homologated. The only reason you can buy this is so that this bike is homologated for World Superbike. Right. They only make 750 per model produced. And each one comes with a plate across the forks that right. tells you which what one? number yours is. You know, it's got proper GP shift, one up, five down. Okay. It's got everything that you would need for racing. It has. The only thing I think it has that's, that's excessive that you wouldn't have on a normal track bike is a starter. Oh, right. Now, but besides that, it's got um, racing modes. It's got two dry track modes, an intermediate mode, and a wet mode. It's got anti-wheelie. It's got 15-way adjustable traction control. There's eight different positions you can set the foot pegs in with adjustable front forks and seat height. This is fully customizable out of the box. And when you buy it, BMW gives you the software to program the ECU and all the modes however you want to set it up. If you want to just go live the dream and you live near Hareth, or near Silverstone, and you want to tear it up at the track, and you've got the money in hand, this is your dream bike. It really comes down between this and the Ducati V4R, doesn't it? I mean, what else are you really going to consider in this realm at about this price, at about this performance? I think the only difference is you can get an R, uh, a V4R, a V4R, you can get street legal, right? Yes. 
So I don't know if they still produce the street legal version of this. They called it something like the HP4 competition. Okay. I don't know if they still make that. But this is what I'm targeting specifically because, you know, there, there is no... There's no value proposition here. There's no, there's no like, well, I mean, there is if it's worth it to you. But this, we're not talking about price. We're not talking about practicality or feasibility. This is, you're buying a dream here. Well, you are buying, uh, well, maybe, no, you're probably purchasing this because you're part of a professional race team, right? Or an individual doesn't buy this, a company buys this a team buys this for seventy eight thousand dollars i think i think this bike is sold at a loss if they're only making 750 of these for seventy eight thousand dollars and when you look at all the things that go into it and all the things they tell you they do when they put this bike together mm-hmm. i think bmw loses money on every single one of these well right but that gets them out there and then people see them at tracks and then they're going to buy, uh, what's the regular BMW? Um, the S1000RR. The S1000RR, exactly. For every one of these they sell, they'll sell 10 S1000RRs to track day enthusiasts because then they can also ride them on the street in their regular day-to-days, right? Mm-hmm. And there is some advantage to selling it a little bit cheaper and making it a little bit more exp- um accessible than the Ducati or whatever, because that inspires a whole younger generation of racers to become BMW brand loyal, right? Right. You and it can't is um it become is... dominant in racing and go right to the top. You have to sort of build a grassroots movement and then slowly build up to be a big winning team, right? Yeah. And this is kind of like buying um you know the Le Mans edition for GT. Yeah. Where you you don't just go up to a dealer and buy this. You know, you put in an application to purchase one of these. Yeah, yeah. There's nowhere immediately obvious to buy this. You know someone that knows someone, and then you go, yeah, I'm going to get one of these things. Because I bet this is not listed as a regular bike for sale on the BMW website. Well, no, there's all sorts of advertising for it, yeah. Uh, I mean, you can go through the site to to get one. Oh, really? Okay. But it's like, call us. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah. There's no form just to submit off a, a thing. Yeah. You need to you need to present yourself as a real person. But yeah. it, when you're uh, but when you're buying one of these, I mean, this is built. Uh, this is absolutely for the fanatic. Because as soon as you try and buy one of these, they'll try and sell you uh, BMW Motorrad leathers and a helm and a BMW branded helmet and a rear stand and the the floor mats for the garage and... right yeah, yeah yeah which i mean if you've got this kind of coin why not oh yeah and i like that this one is kind of going back to the old uh bmw racing livery with the the sort of the blue and the purple and the white and everything that's some of the that's just some of the coolest stuff ever yeah it's awesome Okay. Yeah, I I think some people have been annoyed at this bike because it's so expensive and it's a little bit unattainable. But if you if you think about the fact that it's not street legal at all and it's actually price competitive for something that's basically a world racing series class machine 
right out of the box. Well, the price isn't even that crazy. Like, um, right. I can't remember when where I saw, it, but I was, it's one of the British Superbike teams were buying. It's one of the Ducati teams. They had an in, somebody had an interview with one of the owners, and they were saying, "Well, yeah, we get through about ten engines a season." And we buy those engines direct from Ducati. They come completely disassembled and we put them together. And those are 40 grand a pop. Yeah. And it's like, this is a complete bike ready to race for twice that price of just a motor. Yeah. And how many motors is the rich track day enthusiast going to get through? Yeah. Yeah. The one motor is going to be fine for you for quite some time. Exactly. And at the point they do go into full-on racing, well, that's a different thing. Well, once that happens, hopefully you have factory support. Now, is this thing tuned up all the way, whereas the motor in this thing is probably only going to last three hard races and then be done for? Well, it's not insane. Um, I don't think it's fully tuned to the absolute insane thing that... uh, an actual like world superbike is yeah, i think the, the mapping's up to you how far do you want to push it oh well they give you the software and everything to pr- to program right. it that's what you i'm want. saying yeah um but i think the engine comes stock 13 to 1 compression ratio okay but it's got all the titanium piston rods and everything and it revs to 14 and a half thousand rpm mm-hmm. and it's it's still a bonkers motor it's still yeah. 215 horsepower. Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah. Yeah, you're you're mm. okay. I I would love to have one of these. This or the V4R in terms of just how much I desire the bike itself. I'm still on the edge about, but um looking at sort of the proposition if I were in that space would this be a smarter buy and in the long run just as Oh no! Cool this is a stupid. Fun. This is a stupid bike to own. Oh yes! If you're buying this and you're not on a team, or you're not the owner of a team who is buying this for, uh, for your rider, you're an idiot. Well, there's a but, certain level of wealth where you have the money for it, or you have the money for something more expensive. But you know, rich people don't get rich by just spending more than than you know they can than they're allowed to spend, right? So at a certain point, you have enough money. You just have to start playing these games with yourselves where you go, well, I know it's $84,000, but it's actually sort of a cost-saving thing if you look at it this way. <laughs> and that just sort of allows you to make these purchases because as a rich person, you know, you know, part of the way you got there was by making a series of smart decisions. And since this is not a smart decision, you have to have some sort of mechanism to justify it. Right. So if it's positioned in the market in such a way that is less bananas than other things, it makes it really easy as more of an impulse or a whatever for the person that's in the position to buy it. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's like, really, I wanted an F200, but the wife talked me down to the HP4. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. The uh, the BMW HP4, the most sensible, stupid decision you could ever hope to make. Wait, was it the F two hundred? No, I made that up. What's the? Oh, what's the ridiculous statement? You know, what? never mind. It's not important. All right, 
Cool. Should we move on to worst bike in the world? Yeah, let's go. Okay. All right. So now the worst bike in the world this week is the 1982 and to some degree the 1990 version as well because it came back Harley Davidson FXB Sturgis. So what are we dealing with here? This isn't necessarily a horrible, horrible motorcycle. Um, I'm going to disagree with you just off of glance value alone. Okay. <laughs> it's a little weird to look at. Sure. But this was the first Harley Davidson that brought in the belt drive. This is one of their first big things that they came out with after they were bought out from AMF. So this is post AMF, one of the very first things. And in a way, it's almost the first thing that came out of Harley Davidson after AMF. Now, the very first thing that came out of Harley Davidson after AMF was the super glide. Mm -hmm. And this is basically a super glide just with a different tail, different handlebars, the belt drive. And that's about it. I think it may have added another disc brake up front. I can't remember if the Super Glide had the double front discs as well. But that's also the problem with this bike. Because for me, this motorcycle is the beginning of what Harley Davidson has become, right? This is when Harley is starting to become the Harley Davidson that we know today which worked out very well for them all throughout the 80s and 90s. It was just up and up and up every year. Mm -hmm. But here's the issue. This particular motorcycle, this was a um, 1,200cc, so 81.5 cubic inch. This is essentially still, though, the same engine that they were making during the AMF years. So they claim that this was engineered for unleaded fuel because one of the big issues with the AMF Harleys is that everything went unleaded, but they didn't change the bikes at all. So their engines were just eating themselves up. This still has valve AMF valves in it, basically. So if you have one of these, you have to change the valves out or they're going to disintegrate any Harley from this time. Wait, 7.4 to 1 compression? Yes. Now, this makes... Okay, I can kind of see that. ...supposedly 67 horsepower, but yeah, there's like 50 horsepower making it to the rear wheel. And supposedly 69 foot-pounds of torque, but again, more like 50 making it to the rear wheel. And, you know, it's a four-speed, and that's fine. Um, but here's the thing. This was just something that Harley continued to do again and again and again and again, which was mix and match parts off of bikes they already had to create supposedly new models, right? Well, I'm not going to knock them for that. I mean, that's something that every motorcycle company does today. Not to the extent that Harley Davidson does it, though. But you're saying this is right post AMF years? Yes. 
Okay, so they're they're still kind of scrambling at this point to just put together whatever they can. Well, the Super Glide is sort of a it's a pretty iconic Harley if you're really deep into the histories of Harley. But this was just okay, let's swap around a few more things and hey, people are into Sturgis and that's a thing, so we'll make this Sturgis bike. And right. and this one's really weird because it was like, okay, we're going to make this special edition sort of wide glide thing and we're going to call it the Sturgis. So it only came in this paint scheme that you're looking at, the orange badges and the and the blacked out body. So oddly enough, it was a Harley that you didn't really want to customize, which is the only sort of thing that sets it apart from my problem with this bike of it being where Harley became a little too Harley Davidson. Because if you look at the super glide, it's visually a much different bike than something that Harley had done before. And, and, and just everything about it's a little bit different and quirky. And they, the company almost could have just gone off and done a whole bunch of crazy different things, right? Remember when I was talking about the Harley um, uh, uh, V1000, right? Mm-hmm. You know, they, at this time, they were like, okay, we're reinventing the company and everything. So there were race projects happening, and there were different kinds of bikes being thought of being made. But they came out with this one called the Sturgis. And this is where like Sturgis fever started really getting crazy. If you look at how popular the Sturgis event was and is today, this is about the time that the numbers start skyrocketing. And Sturgis starts becoming a thing that everyone in America knows about. Right? Mm -hmm. So with all these different competing ideas of what Harley-Davidson was going to be post-AMF, this Sturgis bike really becomes what the future of the company is going to be. Because instantly it's kind of fairly popular, but not popular enough that they don't kill it after a couple of years because they're thinking we're going to try all these different things. And then they brought it back again in the 90s. And from then on, it was just nonstop. Okay, we're just going to cut a whole bunch of different bikes apart and put them together in different ways. And every nine to 12 years, we're going to update the engines. And then that's all that has happened at Harley Davidson until this till, till today. Right. And how many other awesome things could we have seen come out of Harley Davidson if this wasn't the direction that was chosen? And so why mm. did they choose this? Well, it wasn't, like I said, because of huge sales numbers, although it did sell all right and there was no problem there. They were making money off selling them. Moto journalists loved the idea of this motorcycle and the wide glide in general. And they loved it because it was big. Like 1982, this is when bigger is better thinking in America is at its all time high, right? We're America, we're number one, we do everything bigger and better and badder, and here we go. Ford Bronco, Jeep Grand Cherokee. Mm Mm-hmm, right. So the idea behind this bike, if you read, and I've read a lot of reviews about this bike at the time, because every magazine and everybody did a review on this, and they all talked about how awesome is this bike, it's so large, Everyone was obsessed by just its hugeness and Americanness, right? 
Now, like the the FLH bikes and all those existed at this time, but weren't necessarily quite the really gigantic behemoths they are today, but they were still very large. I mean, this bike was really, really large. Think about this next to the Magnas and the Viragos and everything and all the different bikes that were trying to do the same thing at the same time. Well, Harley was making the biggest ones, not the best ones, not the fastest ones, the biggest ones that made this splash. And people at this time were willing to spend the extra money on the biggest, baddest one, right? And it's not like the Harley name sold the bikes alone. It was sort of this, oh, you know, I I go home and I watch WWF and those dudes are big. And I drive a car that's big. And I myself am becoming big. Man, we're talking and about the agency. Bike this is, is big. The, this is the WCW. Oh, yeah. Is, yeah. is the WCW? Um, I think WCW and WWF existed alongside each other. I'm, it doesn't matter. This is before WWE, that's for sure. Anyway, yeah, wrestling's big. Wrestlers are big. Like Everything's about this bike being big. And a lot of the reviews of this bike mention that it's not necessarily the... I, like the best bike, right? They they say that, you know, like the handling isn't necessarily that great, but it's so big, right? And they're like, oh, well, you know, that huge engine, you really love like how big and satisfying it is. But they, they admit that it's not really all that fast, but who cares? It's all about being big. It all comes back again and again and again to this, well, is it necessarily a good machine? No, it's just only about its Americanness. And I really think this is the bike that made Harley just go, okay, we're making big cruisers exclusively until that's no longer viable. I think this is the bike where it starts. Mm. And it's it's kind of sad, too, because like I said, this one introduced the belt drive and the double discs up front and a few other little quirky things about it that was making it start to kind of like move away from a couple traditional Harley things. And then once they realized, oh, people love it because it's big, innovation just stopped. Right? Mm-hmm. And what could be more fitting than the Sturgis mindset of, you know, what halted Harley Davidson's progress, right? They'd only just come out of the gates and were ready to do all sorts of other things. And because of the success of bikes like this that weren't really all that spectacular, they were just big and chromey. Well, maybe, you know, the V1000 project could have gotten more funding, could have gotten to the track sooner and been a successful race bike. But no, Harley wanted to focus on just making big bikes. And because Harley kind of quickly got swept up and became this cultural force, because remember, like the 70s, Harley Davidson wasn't Harley Davidson, right? This is when Harley Davidson becomes Harley Davidson, skulls and flames and shit. Yeah, right? This is really that moment. Mm-hmm. And I, 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 it, like, if I was going to have a Harley from these years, I would probably actually have this one. But it's this, it, at the same time, the symbol to me of 
what America was, but then I'm kind of saddened again by the fact that it kept America being America, right? So Harley gets this image of becoming Harley Davidson around this time, and then that essentially dominated what the general public thought motorcycles were, right? It's like Harley thought, oh, we can't make other kinds of motorcycles because people won't want to buy motorcycles that aren't Harley Davidson's. Well, that's only because Harley Davidson wasn't putting their name on other kinds of motorcycles because the brand had become that image for motorcycles. They had licensed the entire time to do something different, but felt painted into this corner. So this motorcycle is the first. It's like that stroke of paint that actually put them into the corner. And then mm. they lifted up the brush and went, oh, no. Oh, I see what we've done to ourselves here. Right. This is like the first trade ship bringing a hold full of opium back to London. Just I, like setting off the the chain reaction. Exactly. It's and and that's just what it is to me. Like I said, there's there's a million things we could talk about the engine and this and that that are problems and why well, the riding just, experience is kind of rubbish, but a lot of bikes were kind of rubbish at this time. So I don't want to trash on it for that. And like I said, they came out of the gates and it, and it was at the time one example of many different things the company was doing. But even just aesthetically, you know, if you look at a, even like an 05 super glide comparatively, the, the whole body of this bike is just a rat's nest of hoses and wiring and all sorts of slapdash modifications just to put the thing together. Like visually this motorcycle is an absolute train wreck. Yes. But again, remember what a Harley Davidson was, was not set in stone at this time. The one really weird thing on this bike that stands out more than anything to me is the one giant rear disc and going for two smaller front discs. Yes, but I'm kind of like proud of Harley at the time for just even thinking that two was necessary because this was a time where people were still like, well, all you need is the rear brake, right? Oh, you can't use the front brake. Go over the handle. Like people at this time distrusted large front brakes. So I think Harley's move with the two small front brakes was like, oh, people won't be so afraid to use their front brake maybe if we do this. This is also early 80s rubber and early 80s suspension. So that kind of makes sense as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's I mean, it's fairly original and Overall, for the time and what it represents, it in and of itself is not total garbage. But right. I think if you take the... But what it represents to yes. the years that followed it is yeah. is the problem. Because it's, think about this. It's the what, legacy it's left. And it's not even of this bike itself. It's what it, it's what it accomplished well, in and, the end. And, you know... It, there are some things about the visuals that we can infer some things from some things that are very symbolic. Like everyone admits that even though the AMF year Harleys were terrible motorcycles, one thing they nailed was the paint jobs. 
right? Right. Or maybe not even the paint jobs. Supposedly the paint wasn't all that great during the AMF years, but the paint schemes were wonderful, right? <laughs> the the stripes and everything and the red, white, and blue and, and all that really worked. And, and Harley's even decided to bring a lot of that stuff back for the Sportsters now. And it's it's a really, really cool theme. But this bike was like, okay, we've got to, we've got to not be AMF. So let's get rid of that. We're just going black. Well, Harley's been just black and orange now ever since, right? Everything Harley Davidson's fucking black. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, I don't even think like McLaren can pull off just all black. You know, you can't just keep building hot black Diziato's spaceship. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Black Diziato. That's a good reference. I mean, here's the thing. Like, the problem, I mean, in short bursts, all black seems really cool and edgy and dark. But I promise you, every single generation, 13-year-old goths will ruin it for you. Yeah. Like, it's not a sustainable proposition. Maybe you can get away with it for a couple of years here and there. But in the long run, it'll never work out. Well, it's just this weird anomaly that going all black essentially has just worked out for Harley for, you know, two and a half decades. And now it's starting to bite them in the ass. And, yeah. So, anyway, like I said, th- there's a million mechanical things about this bike that I can point out that make it absolute garbage to ride. And if you compare it against any modern bike and even a lot of, you know, Metro Cruises and stuff from the 80s in its own time, it just doesn't stack up. But that's kind of low-hanging fruit. It's too easy to attack it for that. What, like I keep saying, it represents is where Harley became single-minded with this motorcycle. Right. And I and I and it sent them down a road that apparently only in the last couple of years have they started to realize is a bit of a mistake. I kind of feel like they've known for quite a while. I think it was like 2013 they really started the 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 course correction i think probably around like 2009 they realized it wasn't going to be super sustainable yeah but i mean well 1982 to 2009 that's that's quite a bit of time and I, i i put a lot of the blame at this harley just going hey we are marrying ourselves to sturgis and 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 flames and skulls and bad dudes and that's it. Like, we are going to get in bed and promote the idea of outlaw bikers and all that nonsense. And I think it starts with this bike. They've kind of married themselves to the carny lifestyle. Yeah. And unusually, it's worked out for a bizarrely long time. Yeah, across a bizarre range of peoples and incomes and, and things like that. But... Yeah, it's just, it shouldn't have worked, but it did. And, you know, it's not like I have a problem with Harley making big cruisers. I think Harley's big cruisers are fucking awesome. But why only big cruisers? And why to the point that for so long in America, other kinds of motorcycles were deemed unworthy, right? Yeah. This bike is kind of almost responsible for why Harley versus sport bikes, right? Harley versus the Japanese Harley versus everyone. Oh, it's always been this, you know, 
we're Harley and we're crusading for freedom and everyone else is a godless communist. Right. <laughs> and I, like I said, they, 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 with this bike, they married themselves to Sturgis and that, that whole biker thing and never looked back. And if you don't live in the Midwest, you may think we're joking, but we're not. Right. So, yeah. Anything else to, that you notice about this you want to say about this thing? Um, there's something there. There is something. I'm trying to think what there's something off about this bike that's not tied to its generation. I can't quite pin down what it is i'm trying to think what it is what is off about this bike oh, i can't think of it. there's something there's something distinct that's throwing me off about this like the weird um airbox um the weird airbox carburetor cover maybe no i i kind of that all makes sense to me it's like the like the the brace across the frame, like it's a dual cradle frame, but it's got this weird horizontal piece across it. Mm-hmm. And there's something else. I think what it might be is this was celebrated as a huge motorcycle, and it's definitely larger than a Magna or whatever, but it's not the full-on gigantic hog that you've come to know from Harling. Mm-hmm. So the visual weight to use a a uh, an EXIF slash Cruffs you know <laughs> motorcycle evalu- evaluating term is that somehow the the spacing of it and the sizes of the components because you've been slapped in the face with what this developed into and the big bad biker thing it's like, it's like I, I, oh it's, the tank's it's... not as big as I thought it would be the 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 seats a little a little off the handlebars aren't quite big enough for what we've come to know yeah i've been looking at the pedigree cruiser over and over again for the last 20 years and now i'm seeing the the mutt that started the breed maybe not the mutt that started the breed but it's like if you look at what you know if you look at what Cocker Spaniels looked like in 1890, they almost you can be like, okay, I can see how that's a Cocker Spaniel, but that's not a Cocker Spaniel, right? That's that's what this is, right? Yeah, there, yeah. So okay, all right. So Harley Davidson Sturgis, worst bike in the world this week, but better than a car. Okay, let's take a little break and then move on to something else. <laughs> It's weird. We've taken a few weeks off from recordings. We we banked up some recordings or whatever. But um, yeah, now really getting true to form. We took a break and we're actually not done with the subject quite yet. Uh, first of all, I want to mention, I think I said a few things that people are going to try to call me on with corrections and omissions. I said, I think, I don't know, I'd have to go back and listen to the audio, but I'm not going to do that right now. But I said something like, this bike was the first thing that came out post AMF. I know that's not true, but this concept of the the big bike with like you know the Sportster forks and and all that sort of stuff. This was the the newest idea that was floating around. And then as far as putting out a a bike with a new name and and all that sort of stuff, this was very early on, right? 
and I understand it's like almost a decade after the birth of the super glide. And this basically is a super glide and whatever. I'm just saying, don't hold me to every date and whatever. The point was that this is sort of the first Harley hog Harley as we know them today was what I was going for. But you, you brought up some other things you've noticed about this Swiggy. Yeah. So looking at the 79 super glide, which is essentially the same motorcycle. The thing that I was fumbling over that I couldn't quite place was the fact that this is a big cruiser with mag wheels that made that really just don't fit with the aesthetic that they've that everyone's reverted to, which is yeah, you can make seven and eight hundred pound bikes with spoked wheels. I imagine they did this just to kind of like bulk up the look of the bike and to make it look big and heavy. But also something I didn't think of until the break was this is a bike making like 67 foot pounds of torque and like 69 horsepower. But there was a model year CB900 when this was released that was probably making as much power at the rear wheel as this was making at the crank at the time. And it's still kind of a good looking bike right now i don't know if this cb 900 c and cb 1000 c are considered good looking bikes right now they've definitely held up better than this has possibly i mean it depends how harley faithful are you to answer that question well nobody was super harley faithful at the end at the end of the amf years well yeah this is true yeah so i guess in in 1982 i think most people would have argued that yeah, the 900 looked a little bit better, but then this was bigger in stature, not bigger in power, not bigger and better at doing what it does, but it was perceived to be better because it was bigger. Wait, weren't both of them like 600 pounds? Um, it doesn't matter. No, people loved the wheelbase and people loved that this oh, right, was a yeah. giant displacement. And people loved that the handlebars were really up high and wide and extreme. And that the seat was just really thick and massive. And everything about it was just a little chromier or a little bit heavier or a little bit bigger than it needed to be. Which wasn't really something that was a trend in bikes before. Mm-hmm. Not really. I mean, even if you think about like really big Indian chiefs and stuff from back in the day. Yeah, they're large, but a lot of the stuff on them, except for, you know, those great big um, uh, front wheel fenders, a lot of it's very utilitarian. There's not really a whole lot of extra stuff on them. And if there is extra stuff, it's small, ornate things. Whereas this bike throws out the ornateness and just goes, I'm big and brash. And that's good enough because America, because NASCAR because whatever and everyone drank the kool-aid mm-hmm. yeah so i don't know i mean you you can't you can't fault people i mean this is kind of like you know mid 90s when everyone was you know because even though triumph had been back for a while when they finally went back on the world stage you know mid 90s and started putting stuff out internationally you know Everyone was super excited. Triumph's back. Post AMF years, and you're getting all sorts of new stuff out of Harley after it's not been doing so well. 
after the quality had been declining and now here's a fresh look of paint on the whole thing and this as america as americans at the time you know this is all we have you can you can give people a little, a little bit of slack for being excited about it even if it wasn't necessarily the best even at that time well no like i said i i I can't say this is a terrible bike and I can't say anyone was wrong for liking it because, you know, I, uh, like I mentioned that this brought in the belt drive and this brought in the double disc brakes and this brought in mag wheels and, and quite a number of things that were new for Harley all at once. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it was almost this groundbreaking bike, but it was, it was the more mundane aspects of it that became the selling points. Right. And that's the tragedy. And, and it took me a while to figure out what I thought about this bike because it was this mixed story of like, Oh, Harley doing all this new cool stuff. And then, Oh no, this is what made Harley stop trying new stuff. Yeah. And, and it was a mixed bag of emotions for me, which is like I said, if I was going to have a Harley from this year, I'd probably have this one, but I would feel horrible about it. <laughs> right? I'd much rather have the AMF like Super Glide for certain, but even though that was mechanically a disaster, there there's ways you can go in, you know, after the fact and sort of fix some things about them and make them usable, but yeah, anyway, I think now we're good. On uh, on talking about this one, okay, just quick little, quick little thing. All right, so now we're gonna get deep into the second part of this episode, which is motorcycle myths. I don't know, should we call this a how to sound like you know what you're talking about? Because yeah, why not? Okay, this is how to sound like you know what you're talking about. Motorcycle myths. Okay, so we've assembled some here that I think are pretty fun to talk about because a lot of motorcycle myths upset people, like loud pipes save lives, right? We're not going to talk about do loud pipes save lives, but I think you all secretly know the answer to that one, if you're really honest with yourself. But, But it seems to me that looking up a lot of these myths, a lot of motorcycle myths exist to help a person justify a decision against safety or to justify a lack of skill. So when you talk about motorcycle myths, almost universally, there's some sort of controversy that comes up because someone's feelings are going to be hurt because it's going to make someone look a little silly. Yes. Most of these myths exist to justify the statement there was nothing I could do. Right. Which brings us to our first one. Our first motorcycle myth. I just had to layer down. Let's get this one out of the way. But this is sort of a fun one to talk about. Because there's a little bit of science we can bring in here. If you watch a motorcycle crash video. If the bike's moving at any speed. The bike will go much further down the road than you would think something like a motorcycle would be able to do. And if you see any kind of motorcycle, even one with shitty brakes with the brakes applied by an expert or an ABS assisted system, the distance 
it stops in is way less. So let's examine this, right? In what situation would it be better to, quote, layer down than maintain control of the motorcycle and actively use your brakes to decrease speed and impact rather than, well, I'm just going to, you know, jump off this bike, throw the direction that I'm traveling in up to God and, um, and yeah, just basically put a big question mark on everything and just give up all control and just put it into chaos. Right. What, what well, is that situation? Cause I've never heard that situation. Well, here's the question. Who thinks that leather skin or aluminum has a lower or has a higher friction coefficient than rubber? Are your tires not designed to get the maximum possible amount of friction and traction with the road as possible? What other part of your bike or you is designed to do that? None. None. So the one thing that is made to get as much grip as possible to make you go as fast as possible is also the thing that makes you stop as quickly as possible. Right. But looking into the situation as well, like I said, this is one of those things that people say to justify a crash that they've had because they had a lapse of attention or whatever. It was like, nope, nothing I could do, just had to lay her down. And it sounds like really comical to a lot of people, but I have had people say this to me. And when you try to say, well, no, you should have just like used your brakes more, they double down. Like, no, 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 you weren't there. The way it was coming at me, it's what I had to do. Like, now, maybe it randomly worked out okay and you didn't die. But running the odds, it's way better to be using your brakes right up to the moment of impact. Absolutely. And if you feel that there was no way to avoid the accident, then maybe you need to brush up on your skills handling the bike. Yeah, when I went down on on the Vulcan, part of me going down was that I panic braked and locked it up. Now, if I didn't if I didn't know any better, I might have said, "Oh, I had to lay her down." But no, the reality is I fucked up and I didn't brake properly. And if I had been if I if I had been riding longer and I had more experience and more experience on that bike, I probably would have done a much better job. But there is also something to the idea of even if you're only going to hit it 10 to 15 miles an hour, it does take a lot of guts and a lot of concentration and, and kind of assertiveness to just say, I'm just going to steadily increase my braking pressure until I slam into the side of this SUV. Like it's not an easy thing to do. That's true. But it's still a myth that you have to layer down, right? Yes. It's still better to do that. But here's the other thing. What is this situation in which an accident is developing where you have all this spare time and attention to weigh the options of breaking until you hit something or going, you know what? I'm in a controlled method going to put this bike down. I'm calling bullshit. Like accidents develop quickly. 
that's why it's an accident. Otherwise, you would have been able to avoid it. So that you're telling me this unavoidable thing comes into your path or whatever. This situation develops unexpectedly, but you are of presence of mind to try to put the bike down in some way that's least harmful for you and everyone else involved but you don't have the ability to break or avoid the object or couldn't have been actively taking steps to put yourself in a good position on the road before this. I don't buy it. I don't buy it. I don't think I'm not going to say the situation has never occurred, but I've tried to come up with any scenario and I can't think of one. Yeah. Small tangent. You're not as much of a, of an internet browser as I am. So you probably don't experience this as much, but especially on Reddit and other places, just going through like dash cam footage and all sorts of clips. There's this really interesting thing that occurs where people will, will watch a video of a motorcycle accident. And then even like, well, even like on YouTube. And then there's this weird divide of insane people on either side of the subject where a lot of people say, well, here's what you should have done as a motorcyclist because you, you kind of fucked up, even though yes, that car turned left in front of you. Here's X, Y, and Z thing you could do better. And then there's all the people on the other side who are saying, no, fuck you. The motorcyclist didn't do anything wrong at all. And like, there's kind of like two separate movies playing where it's like, no, I'm not saying it's his fault. I'm saying this is the real world. Shit happens. You have to protect yourself from it. And then the other side's like, no, I should be able to do everything exactly as I like within the letter of the law. And then nothing bad should ever happen to me. And I'm going to live my life that way. Yeah, I think this all took its its uh, its final form about a year ago when the when all those like bikers versus cops videos and road rage road rage drivers versus bikers videos were were all coming up right uh, what was the big um the big channel that was super popular with this it was um oh gosh it, the the intro had that line from uh from from Mad Max he's like what a day what a lovely day and grip it and rip it what was it um motorcycle madness or so anyway, there is the online collections of these videos. So I am familiar with this. People will double down their argument or they will always take the side of the rider or always take the side of the driver or whatever. And what people aren't doing is applying critical thinking. Yes. So, yeah, when it comes to motorcycle safety, it's pretty advisable to try to lose your ideology as much as possible so you can see the true information. But let's do one that's not safety related because those are really fun. So a a myth that we both enjoy a lot is the brake fluid koozie. So explain what that is because I think some people might not be too familiar with this. Well, some people call it like the the cover sock for your brake reservoir. And this is a, this is a really big thing among the the sport bike riders. And all it is, is basically like a, um, it's basically just like a sweat band that you put over the brake reservoir, 
the 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 brake fluid reservoir on your on your sport bike and there's been a lot of amazing myths around what it's supposed to do uh the main one that i've heard is you have to get some sort of cover for your brake fluid reservoir because uv light will break down your brake fluid and it won't work as well yeah and so i think the idea is that therefore they get this cover therefore they don't need to change their brake fluid anymore (laughs) or something like that and when you yeah and, and and the reasoning is patently absurd because how much would it cost whatever bike manufacturer to just make the thing black right also i don't think anyone's ever well here's the thing 80 percent of the explanations i get for it is that is that yeah. uv light breaks it down i don't think that anyone who has ever bought one of these has done the cost-benefit analysis of how often they have to change their brake fluid versus how much did this little koozie cost me. I don't think anyone's ever done the math (laughs) on that one. (laughs) Well, the thing is, too, is like whilst it's really dumb – I have to admit the brake the brake reservoir koozie is a really fun little thing. You know, you can have one with like you know the the logo or the name of your favorite podcast on it or your favorite racer, and of course, it's only been reinforced by racing because they've realized, oh hey, this is a whole nother place on the bike we can put advertising that yep. we didn't even realize. We've already got the the tank cam. Exactly. Now we can just put something on there. Yeah, it was totally unused advertising real estate, right? Um, so, so it's only reinforced there. So now you have people put them on because, well, now you also get to look like your favorite racer as well. So overall, I have to say this is a totally harmless myth. And in a way, it's actually kind of a little bit of a net positive because the koozies are kind of fun, right? And, and there's, there's no harmful effect of people thinking UV light breaks down their brake fluid, right? I, I don't see how people are dying or getting hurt over this. Right. I mean, maybe in the situation where you would think, oh, I don't have to change my brake fluid because I'm protecting it from UV light. But I don't think people really go that far. I think they understand that it does just slowly break down from regular use also. Also, by the way, polyethylene is opaque to UV light. Just because you can see the oil, you you can see the fluid in your brake reservoir doesn't mean that UV light is hitting it. It's fine. (laughs) Okay, so let's go back to a... um... I think we can tread waters into some more um, controversial now. So helmet myths, just by and large, there's so many of these. I think we just kind of need to blast through them a little bit quickly. So number one, helmets are dangerous because they block your vision. Uh, Not true for two simple reasons. Well, here's the thing. The only way you could ever possibly say that is if you have never worn a full face helmet before. Right. And let's say you do believe that. Well, to the like, you're aware you're able to swivel your head, right? Let's say it did. 
or let's say helmets in the 70s did, right? Guess what? You can turn your fucking neck and see whatever you want to see. And if you're riding properly, you should be turning your head when you ride a lot. You should be turning your head in corners because you're going to you need to point your eyes at where you want to go. Okay. When you're changing lanes, just like you look over your shoulder in a car, you need to look over your shoulder on the bike. So it doesn't add up for the simple reason that you can turn your head to look directly at whatever you want to look at. Well, even then, I've never put on a helmet where I could see the edge of the the helmet in my peripheral vision. Oh, of course. I mean, yes, I can see my nose guard. That's because I can see my fucking nose. Yeah. Like, that. that's going to happen, yes. Yeah. But up, down, I mean, up and left and right, no. If you're wearing a properly fitted helmet, then no. It does not block your vision at all in any functional way. All right. So, um, uh, like I said, we just got to like blast through these helmet myths. So, um, DOT is a reasonable certification. Not true. It's self-certifying. It basically means nothing. If, like we always say, if a uh, if a little, um, not even three quarter, but half helmet can meet the DOT, that obviously means it's a completely useless standard. If your whole face can be destroyed at 20 miles an hour wearing this thing, well, then guess what? It's worthless as a standard. Um, what else is a good helmet myth? Um, oh, you're more like people say you're more likely to have a concussion wearing a helmet. Well, there is a, there is a very, tiny sliver of truth to that one which is as we introduce more safety gear and as helmets get better people tend to engage in more risky behavior because of the fact that you're more protected people are more willing to take risks that doesn't mean you shouldn't take advantage of the best possible safety you can that is more a question of your own decision-making and what level of risk you're willing to take on. Well, I think this also comes from the fact that there are more people wearing helmets now than used to. So, yes, a rise in concussions has come up, but those are replacing straight-up motorcycle traumatic brain injury deaths from riding without a helmet at all. Well, that's like the... So what um, would you prefer, concussion or being a vegetable or dead. Well, it's like the um it's like the the World War 1 myth where they started um fitting all the Tommies with helmets. And then as soon as they did, they realized, "Oh, after we've given them all these helmets, we're getting all of these head injuries now. We're getting all of these casualties where they're coming into the infirmary with head injuries. Well, we should get rid of these helmets." Right. It's like, well, no, no. we shouldn't because <laughs> they're casualties it was in guys the just being shot in the head. <laughs> well, 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 no, it's more from like um, artillery or oh, shrapnel, whatever. Yeah, it's like, yeah, yeah. They're they're casualties because they're not in the morgue. Right. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very much like that. So uh, another helmet myth. People say also that. 
you are going to experience a lot of neck fatigue and discomfort and therefore be more likely to crash wearing a helmet. That uh, can be true. Uh, yeah, that can, yeah, if you're not wearing a good helmet. Modern helmets are so much better than they used to be. They're aerodynamic. They're so much lighter. They're so much more comfortable. This this argument doesn't hold water anymore. But yet there may have been a time or there may be a person wearing a helmet so ill-fitted to them that some issues like this could arise. But if you spend more than eight minutes selecting a proper helmet, I don't think any of this holds water. I agree. Okay. So I think that I think it does it well enough for helmet this right now. Um, let's see here. Let's go for another fun one. How about bolts on horsepower? Okay. <laughs> so okay, it's, it's really difficult to go through these and not just sound like a know-it-all asshole. Now, immediately a bunch of people on this one, bolt on horsepower are going to go, wait, hold on. I know the thing that can increase power and this and that. Admittedly, there's a lot of variables on this. But if you are buying a modern bike with fuel injection, you know, fuel mapping, and there's an O2 sensor and temperature sensors on the engine and the exhaust and all of that, the likelihood that you can introduce a part, an add-on, a replacement part of your engine, which will create more power, is very small, if not nothing. So let's take a slip-on exhaust pipe, right? So they're going to tell you all sorts of things about airflow and this and that and whatever bolting on this pipe. Well, if it's going to have real effects it's going to need to be matched to the fuel mapping and whatever. And I think sort of the only place where people are open and honest about this idea is actually oddly enough, Harley Davidson dealerships where they're like, Oh, you've got this new exhaust pipe. Hey, you need to spend $500 so we could dyno tune it and everything and get everything correct again. Otherwise putting these pipes on is going to fuck up your day. Right. Mm. It's a whole process. You can't just put on a new pipe and you magically have more power. It just doesn't work that way. Everything from the air intake to the exhaust and everything in between needs to compensate. And let's say you do end up having more top-end power. That means you're sacrificing power somewhere else. You never get anything for free and they don't just make these machines and then just hobble the engines needlessly. That's not how it works, right? Especially with the Japanese, the Japanese especially don't like to over engineer things. There's a certain elegance to them of putting in something that is just strong enough and doesn't have anything extra to it because then it's the lightest and it's two spec and it's engineered correctly, right? You, it's like you don't need to build a bed out of concrete, right? It doesn't need to hold that much. Like two by fours work just fine, right? It's stupid to make a bed out of marble or whatever, or a shelf or whatever, right? So that's, that's how they're going with this. You are not smarter 
than the engineers and neither are two brothers right <laughs> or kirker or whoever else and then well it's not that they don't make good product and that they can't be used to make the bike to give the bike higher performance it's that just changing the exhaust flow on your motorcycle will not just magically give it 10 more horsepower with no trade-offs right well and then let's say it does magically give you 10 more horsepower where is that 10 more horsepower at the very top right that 10 more horsepower is going to come in at max rpm in your highest gear how often are you riding there and if the answer's a lot you're not going to be riding very much longer like go back to myth number one i had to lay her down and really listen to what we're saying there well that or you're riding a cb350 yes but okay okay the cb350 is an interesting case so i did do these things to my CB350. I put in larger carbs, they were slide carbs. I rejetted it. I put all the the you know the exhaust on it and everything. And I did all those things and it took forever to get the bike running right. And when it did run right, it didn't run right for very long, but I was riding it around and I could get the bike to reliably do like 85 miles an hour with my fat ass on it. But, you know, it was just terrible to ride in town after that. All the mid-range power was gone. Acceleration mm -hmm. all of a sudden took forever. Yeah, I had more top end, but I had no mid-range power. So just like stoplight to stoplight all of a sudden was miserable. And it was only good, you know, above like 45, 50 miles an hour is when it started to kind of come alive. But doing those kinds do of RPM, spend, right, yeah, on that bike. Yeah, much time over 45 miles an hour on a CB350? Right, and with how terrible the oil system is on that bike, anytime I was getting the power to actually kick in a bit, the engine was just eating itself up because it didn't have enough oil, right? Because it's not meant to spin that fast. It just wasn't. The national speed limit was 55 when that motorcycle was made, and there was a big red line on the on the speedo gauges where 55 was like hey once you pass here it's kind of unnecessary so the bike wasn't really made to go faster than that and when you adjust the bike so that's kind of where your power is really starting it's not a good situation so let's say you can up the power on an old bike because yeah if you take an old 70s bike you can throw a more open exhaust on it and you can put bigger carburetors and you can adjust it and you can get more horsepower out of it but at that point you are decreasing reliability there's a big trade-off there and you know how fast do you need a 70s honda cb to go like for the same money, just buy a faster bike. It, it There's no situation in which it really adds up to be worth it. There just isn't. So, yeah, I mean, well, it's a question of, yeah, well, as, as, as I, I said, and Jack found out, you know, what can you do to an FZ07 and at what price that when you add the, the price of the bike and the mods, would you not be better off just buying an FCO9? Yeah, exactly. So 
bolt-on horsepower, I think, is pretty much a myth. When it when it comes to practice mm-hmm. and it being worth it, I think it's a myth. Well, it, doesn't make, also, it doesn't add up. I have a similar experience with the W650 because I did the whole, oh, hey, if you just put these little uh, these washers over your over the 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 needles in your carbs on the W650 it'll open up the carbs a little bit more it gets rid of that flat spot in the middle of the rev range and it just opens it up and gives you a little bit more power and i did it and it kind of felt okay for a while but i probably lost 2 to 3 miles per gallon on the fuel efficiency and when i pulled the spark plugs and inspected it after like 6 months they were just completely black with soot. And it didn't really give me all that much other than at the specific rev range, when you're in third gear at 35 miles an hour, it doesn't have this little flat spot. And it's like, oh, here's this quick fix that makes everything better. It's like, no, it doesn't. Yeah. It's it's you're you're almost always just making a deal with the devil. And it's it's never in your favor. Okay. So I've got another one that's not necessarily safety related, but it's not like the brake fluid one. Um, so here's the myth. It's important to be able to flat foot your bike. I call garbage on this. And I thought of this one because lately I've noticed an obsession with seat heights. Everyone thinks it's super important that sitting on the bike at a standstill, you're just the most comfortable person that's ever lived. You're it's just super plush and and whatever, whatever, whatever. Now, I agree having confidence is an important part of motorcycling, but that confidence has to come from building skill. It has to come from experience. You can't just get confidence for free and that makes you a better rider. Doesn't yes. work. So now let me ask you this question. Do you think if you need to be able to flat foot your bike, it's important for what reason? If it's not comfort, that really only leaves balance. How much does the average motorcycle weigh? Well, anywhere from 300 to 800 pounds, you know, pretty much, right? Yeah, I know there's 200 pound bikes, whatever, but in general, like 98% of everything falls in 300 to 800 pounds, right? Well, North America. Okay. Yeah. So are are really sitting there with your knees bent comfortably as if you're in a chair with your heels on the ground, you're supporting somewhere in the neighborhood of 500 pounds. I think not. What you are doing is balancing the bike and you're not holding up that amount of weight. You're just adjusting your balance, which you can easily do with your toes. Not to mention that using both feet on the ground is incorrect. When you're stopped, you should keep one foot covering your rear brake and use your other foot like a kickstand. And guess what? When you put that little extra lean, you'd be surprised what you can actually put flat down, you know, your foot with. But if it's just your toe, that's still okay too, because you are balancing the bike and you need to learn to balance the bike. Yeah. 
Well, perfect example. Do you think Danny Pedrosa could flat foot his MotoGP bike? No. <laughs> Not a chance in hell. He can he, barely get his toes down. <laughs> well, even better, there are there's actually YouTube footage of people who are like four foot six who can't even tiptoe their bikes and have to jump out, jump off the bike every single time it comes to a stop. And they can still ride their bikes. Yeah, why? Because they know how to balance the bike. And that is way more important than being able to put your heels down on the ground. I kind of blame this myth on Harley dealers because, you know, Harleys traditionally have low seat heights. And they're like, well, let me tell you why this is great. See how you can put your feet down on the ground? And that's just a little trick that you can do with customers who don't know how to ride or you know, whatever. It's just something you can get them down. You can see how great that is on this bike. You can get right down there low and low is good. You're not so high. Yeah. It doesn't feel so weird. It's free confidence. You don't have to earn. Right. And free confidence isn't worth anything. It, it, it disappears. It's worth a sale. Well, yeah, but, but right. But you, you can't get confidence for free or, you know, it's just a matter because the moment something starts to go wrong, it just evaporates. Right. So, yeah, that that's why I have an issue with that one. I, I think there's a lot of people with a false sense of security because they think, oh, I'm a little lower down or whatever. No. And, and if you can't deal with that, like, I've said this before, motorcycling is, it's putting up with a lot of things that you don't have to put up with because riding is fun, right? Yeah, you you have some wind around you. You deal with a wider range of weather and temperatures. You deal with no airbags and crumple zones and things. You deal with not having a trunk to carry absolutely everything you want. They're trade-offs. So being the most comfortable person that ever lived on your bike, I don't think is nearly as important as learning how to operate it well. And that means balancing it, keeping it balanced. At the end of the day, not crashing means keeping balance. So there we go. And I think our last one on this list now is the myth that bikers are bad dudes. Yeah. <laughs> so so what do you got on this one, sweetie? So... If you're able to apply any sort of rational thought to that statement, it's immediately bullshit. So, okay, first of all, the notion that risk-taking behavior is indicative of a criminal lifestyle, patently false. There's not a lot of skydiving yakuzas, okay? Right. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, roller coaster enthusiasts don't mug old ladies, right? <laughs> right. So the association there is just ridiculous, but it's something that's somewhat per somewhat perpetuated by by Hollywood. Yes. Yeah, and that's really the only place it comes from. But yeah, well, 
the best way to put it is that all of the actual motorcycle criminals call themselves one percenters. I have serious doubts that it's even one percent. I think one percent is generous. Now, yeah, there are plenty of people who pose as one percenters, and those people will make themselves super obvious because here's the truth. Ninety nine point nine percent of bikers are totally normal people. So guess what? When they walk into a bar or a place, they don't advertise trying to be criminals or bad dudes. So you don't notice it, right? So it's a confirmation bias. Someone walks into a bar with their patches or whatever, and they might be a one percenter, but it's more than likely there's someone trying to cosplay as a one percenter, which I, I can see why that might be fun for someone to kind of want to look like a big bad biker from a bike exploitation movie or a Hell's Angel sort of thing, right? But they are putting that out there aggressively, and people notice that. And what they don't notice are the ninety nine point nine percent of other people who just don't make a big deal about it, right? Yeah. Well, it's like when was the when was the last big like motorcycle gang shootout we heard about? Oh, it was actually here in Denver like two years ago. <laughs> no, there was another one. Oh, uh, it was at a Twin Peaks in Waco, Texas. Was that that was I think in close proximity as time wise to the one that was at the, I, the I feel Denver like motorcycle show? Was it a year ago? Anyway, it, but. But yeah, is is Twin Peaks your badass biker bar? <laughs> like... <laughs> right. The, yeah, the, the the amount of actual criminal or bad dude, you know, harmful biker people is such an absurdly low number, right? I bet it's less. I bet like in Colorado, I bet it's like less than 500 people. Oh, I'd be surprised if there were 500 real one percenters in Colorado. I really would. Like, I know, you know, the Mongols or whoever claim to be a big deal here, whatever. But, like, it, it's it's a dying thing. It really is. I, they probably sell some drugs and things or whatever. But is that even really being a biker? You, I, I don't know. It's just the aesthetic you've, desi- you've decided to put on your gang. Just buy a laptop and... Get into identity theft. Right. Better deal. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So the idea that bikers are bad dudes really doesn't hold any water for me because. No, there's a lot of bikers who want to be bad dudes. Well, I don't even think they want to be bad dudes. I think they just want to. They want to borrow a little bit of that image. They want to for their own purposes. They, They want they want to steal the aesthetic. Right. And so, but as a consequence of that, they want that that aesthetic to keep going. Right. But there are plenty of guys or women or whatever, writers, there's plenty of writers that even though they'll dress up like they're, you know, big bad bikers, they like the image, but they still don't even really want to be seen that way. Like he said, they're not bad people. They're not mean people at all. It's just kind of something that's become a thing of a way to look. 
and they're into the image. And then therefore people who don't know anything about motorcycles extend like, Oh, this is some sort of like hell's angels person sort of thing where I, I feel like if you went up to just any biker and said something a little untowards, you would have no higher likelihood of getting into some sort of altercation with them than you would uh, your average office employee. I mean, honestly. I feel like you would be in a lot more danger if, like, you bumped into a strung-out single mother at a Denny's. Yeah, yeah. I, I Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. So... Okay, and then didn't we have like a sort of honorable mention one to put on here as well? Something that wasn't a full on. Oh, oh, you mentioned the, uh, it at the top of the show, at the top of the segment, the loud pipes. No, 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 no. I, I do not want to talk about the loud pipes things. I think it's so absurd. I don't even want to talk about. It. No, the stat that you're most, uh, you're most likely to crash if you're older. Now, I got to oh. put heavy asterisks on this. That I think this is sort of in the myth area. Because I don't think all the science is really in on this I don't think we should do one. this one. I think we should talk about it later. Well, like I said, I don't want to talk about it as straight up a myth. I just want to put this as like honorable mention. These days, people are saying that, oh, you're more likely to be in a crash because the average age of people who have crashed is like 42. But I have not seen a study that I'm convinced takes into account that most writers tend to be like 42, right? There aren't a whole yeah. lot of 17-year-old riders, right? And there's not a whole lot of, like, 88-year-old riders. That's kind of the average. I don't think you're more likely to crash, but basically the science is out. There's been this idea that, like, oh, if you're a younger rider, you're a better rider, and it's old people who are getting glaucoma and arthritis that are crashing motorcycles. I, I don't think this information is really taking all things into a, into account. It's definitely not. Th there's more studies and there's better ways these studies need to be done, is what I'm saying there. Yeah. All right, cool. All right. Um, we're at a pretty good amount of time now. Do you think we should include anything else in this episode? Uh, let's take a break and we can edit it afterwards if we're... Okay. <laughs> Okay, so it turns out only one quick thing we want to leave everybody with, and that is, even though it's the beginning of the year, it seems like the very middle of this deep, dark, horrible winter and no riding, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. What do you got, Swigs? All right, so we're past the winter solstice. The days are getting longer. Yes, there is hope. We'll get a bit colder to start with, but... We're on the trend upward. We're on the path to success. But I just want to leave you all with uh, the countdown until the first races of the season. So, in 52 days, you can watch the first race of World Superbike at Phillip Island. In 58 days, you can watch MotoGP at Qatar. At LaSalle. Moto America, it'll take a little bit longer. But in 85 days, you can watch the first Moto America race at Road Atlanta. 
I want to say something about Moto America. We didn't give a whole lot of love to it this last year. And it's kind of my intention to really walk through the season with everybody this year on Moto America and make a much bigger deal about it. And I think we should investigate and get some like Moto America people on the show as well. I'm really interested in that. I have, I'm developing more and more of an emotional investment in Moto America all the time. And I really want to see it do well. So Hopefully we can uh, get all of you guys excited in that and pimp that up a little bit for everyone because it's free. So how can the value be bad for you, for starters? And it's cool. Like at this level of racing where there's not a whole lot of money going around, there's that adds a certain level and it takes away on a certain level, right? There's not all the, the pageantry and the spectacle of MotoGP per se, but if you scratch the surface and you read about the writers and you, you keep up on it with on the AMA website and everything, it's a really compelling little drama that plays out every single year. It's absolutely worth everyone's attention. I mean, as far as MotoGP goes, I feel like you're a fan or you're not, right? If If you've watched a couple races and you're not hooked... I don't know what it's going to take. There's no way to help you. Right. You're a lost soul. And you know, if, if MotoGP is not your thing, it doesn't have to be your thing. But Moto America is way more badass than it gets credit for being right now, I think. Oh, yeah. Well, it's it's the it's the level of the salaries that the riders are are fighting for and what they're doing for those salaries. And compared with the skill that they have, it is they're, they're grinding it out Mm -hmm. and it is worthy of your attention and worthy of your respect. Yeah. In a strange way, even though MotoGP is such a much bigger thing, when you cut down the spectacle, but also the resources it's all kind of laying naked in front of you and you can see just exactly what an effort it is to have those teams put these races together. Whereas, you know, with GP, there's all these big sponsors and stuff and it's kind of like, well, I'm just following this one little character and it's within this bigger thing, you know, and there'll be someone to very quickly replace this rider if he leaves. That's not necessarily true in Moto America. The grid is kind of the size of who can afford to be there to begin with. Right. Well, it's like British Superbike. You know, it is a it is a kind of a sequestered little market of that nation and what they can do and what funds they can put towards it. And it's similar to how it's similar it's kind of a on the spectrum, it's in between kind of MotoGP and like TT racing mm-hmm. where MotoGP is more kind of the it's it's very professional it's very refined it's the top talent it's very impressive but it's also on the best courses with the most money and it's very it's very safe in comparison then you know British Superbike and Moto America they're not on as clean a course it's a little bit rougher the tracks aren't as in good condition but you know it's it's the next step up to get to MotoGP potentially and it's kind of it's kind of like watching college football you know to see who gets into the end 
in the, into the NFL. Yeah, it's but a then, good comparison. But then on the far side, you've got you know TT racing, which is the guys who are just fucking insane yeah. and will do anything for a paycheck. And you have to marvel at that at the least. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, cool. So I think we're good to end this one now. You good with that? Mm-hmm. All right, everybody. So thank you so much for listening to episode 49, or you could even think of it as episode one of season two of the Nokomoto podcast. And remember, please, it's your cost of admission. It's not too late to pay it. Leave a rating and review for us. We want to hit those goals. And with that, I'm going to remind everyone to stay safe and stay tuned. Let's run the outro. And I don't want to die. Just want to ride on my motorcycle. Mm, cold. 